0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. So glad that you have joined us today on the program. We are just two weeks away from the Supreme Court case that could be the end of Roe versus Wade. What can we all be doing to build a pro-life culture as we wait? We'll talk about it. In addition, the number of minors taking cross-sex hormones and undergoing sex reassignment is increasing exponentially. Some medical professionals say it's a good thing, but FRC is making arguments in court saying otherwise. We'll tell you about that. In addition, what exactly is a scientific consensus, and how often are the scientists wrong? We'll talk about that as well. But now for the headlines today. Yesterday, a federal court ordered each branch of the military beginning January 7th to file a detailed report every 14 days describing how they are handling medical and religious exemption requests from the COVID shot. Now, to date, 16,643 requests have been filed by service members, but not one has been granted. Hundreds have been denied. With the military now under a microscope, is there hope for the thousands of service members who are being forced to choose between taking the shots or leaving the service? Joining me now to talk about it is Sean Timmons. He's a managing partner at Tully Rinke Law Firm, where he is representing more than 100 military personnel seeking COVID shot exemptions. Sean, welcome to Washington Watch.
1: Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you.
0: Uh, we're glad to have you. First, what was your reaction to the ruling yesterday by federal judge Stephen Merriday?
1: Uh, about time somebody's finally giving some scrutiny to the situation because, unfortunately, uh, certain members have been facing a, a significant amount of obstacles, and the harassment has been ongoing, and it's it's been just quite concerning.
0: Give us some details about that harassment as we work on your camera there. Um, tell us, Sean, what are they experiencing as they try to get these exemptions?
1: Uh, the bullying, admonishment, harassment, uh, you name it, the synonyms are all the same. They're experiencing quite a bit of uh, obstacles. Think of it as um, command arrest, meaning the, the individuals in chain command are under a significant amount of pressure from their leadership to get their their soldiers or their airmen or their Marines in 100% compliance. Individuals have filed medical waivers. They have filed religious accommodation requests. However, they're getting stonewalled every step of the way. The Air Force has already started moving to separate individuals who have not uh, received an approved accommodation or an approved uh, medical waiver or an administrative uh, deferral. The military, you know, the the numbers they're telling you and they're telling Congress don't match up with the reality on the ground. I know the Marine Corps probably has the largest percentage of those individuals who are not vaccinated, and the Navy probably has the highest percentage of compliance overall. However, there's significant pushback within the Army, uh, the Air Force, the Marines, Navy, each branch, and across all ranks, too. Um, I mean, we're seeing it across the board uh, every, every step of the way.
0: Now, this is a tremendous number of, of- Exemptions that have been filed, 16,000, more than 16,000, none so far have been granted. Has there been any explanation from any of the branches of service for why the number is zero that have been granted so far?
1: Primarily, it's bureaucratic uh, ineptitude that many individuals have received Requests for approval from the chain of command, meaning the chaplain at the installation, which is Fort Hood or Fort Bragg, has actually uh, signed off on a recommendation for approval. So has the command in some limited circumstances. Uh, frankly, most commands are, are recommending denial. However, a, a large number have, that uh, we've seen personally, have process them with recommendations for approval. However, they have to go up to the secretary of the service to be approved. And unfortunately, that's where we're seeing inaction, lack of activity. The secretary of the army did tell the Military Officers Association of America that there, there were going to be approvals. However, none have officially come down the pipeline, to my knowledge.
0: So at this point, do you think it's as much just bureaucracy that's holding this up as it is a principled by position in the military that we're not going to grant any of these?
1: It's pr- primarily political pressure from the military, what, I, what I'm seeing and noticing. That political pressure is, is coming straight from the office of the president on down um, to teach Francis, each secretary. And the, unfortunately, Secretary Austin and General Milley uh, are, you know, lack of better terms, they're full woke. So they're not going to get with the program when it comes to individuals wanting the religious accommodations. They simply, uh, you know, don't buy its legitimacy. That's, that's my been my experience and my impression. So, unfortunately, the number will be limited. They're going to try to force a lot of the people out. There's actually been controversy. The Oklahoma National Guard has refused to comply, and the Department of Defense has said, well, you're going to have to comply. And there's ongoing litigation regarding whether that's going to actually come to fruition. You know, State Guard soldiers serve under the command of the governor, not of the president, unless they're activated and federally mobilized. So, logistically, mandating compliance is going to be uh, interesting to see how they're going to try to accomplish that. A lot of pushback politically on the ground. And I know the National Defense Authorization Act, there's been movement to try to ensure individuals who are separated for vaccine refusal receive honorable discharge. However, to my knowledge, that has not been vested in law yet. So it's still open for debate. We'd like to see more action by our elected leadership to protect those individuals who have, uh, you know, religious or, or moral objections to the mandatory vaccination.
0: Then beginning in January... As per the court order, each branch of service is going to have to file a report every 14 days describing how they're handling these exemption requests. What do you hope will be the outcome from these reports?
1: Well, hopefully they'll show good faith uh, intent to grant legitimate exemptions and accommodations. There is existing regulatory um, guidance to grant vaccine waivers and vaccine accommodations, And they've been granted previously over the years. So I don't understand why all of a sudden on COVID they're going to say blanketly they're they're not going to grant any approvals when individuals already have approved uh, exemption requests for flu vaccine and other mandatory vaccination protocols in place. And the regulation on exemption requests has been in place for for a very long time.
0: Now, Captain Andrew Wood. He's a Marine Corps spokesman at the Pentagon, and he recently issued a statement that said, quote, The Marine Corps has always recognized the threats posed by the COVID-19 pandemic as a readiness issue, which is why we have consistently emphasized the importance of receiving the vaccine, end quote. Do you agree that this is a readiness issue for the branches of service, and that's why they are being so strict on their policy?
1: No, that, that's laughably asinine. It's actually a readiness issue in the reverse, meaning forcing individuals who are qualified and capable and credentialed out of the military is going to cause a readiness a catastrophe. We're already forcing pilots out who have un, a tremendous skill, and they're going to go work for Delta Airlines or other you know competitor organizations and, and double their income because they're leaving the military. So this is an opportunity to lose qualified talent through forced vaccination, it actually makes no sense whatsoever. The the survival rate for COVID-19 amongst the healthy population of the military is 99.9%. Most of the deaths from COVID-19 have been individuals who have comorbidities or or elderly. Well, those individuals are usually not authorized to serve in the military because they don't meet medical retention criteria. So the percentage of individuals who are on active duty, in uniform, who have died of COVID-19 is far beneath the suicide epidemic, and other causes of death for those on active duty. So it's, it's quite it's quite silly explanation.
0: To your point, reports are that 70 members of the military have died uh, with co- from COVID during the pandemic. Uh, orders of magnitude more than that stand to be kicked out over this issue. So to your point, when it comes to just do we have enough personnel Uh, The risk from the mandate does appear uh, likely to remove more members, uh, more service members from the military than the virus itself. There's another part of this issue, though. Military chaplains are apparently a key cog in this process. What do you think about how the Pentagon is using chaplains to enforce this mandate?
1: It's, It's quite concerning. Chaplains have been under duress for a very long time in the military. Unfortunately, they're having their sermons scrutinized strictly. If they're, you know, they, if that chaplain says in their sermon they only believe there's male and female and there's not 61 genders, they're going to be admonished and mocked for, you know, practicing their faith. So chaplains are under a significant amount of duress with the new, you know, information from DOD as far as, uh, you know, transgender uh, philosophy. So it doesn't surprise me that chaplains would be under equal duress to try to tell individuals their religious convictions are not actually sincere or legitimate. And that's unfortunately what they're trying to task a lot the chaplains with—is to basically force them to to concede that yeah, this, this individual soldier or sailor or marine doesn't actually have a legitimate moral objection. However, there has been pushback. The chief arch archbishop for the uh, you know the Catholic services there in the, in the army, I'm sorry, in Department of Defense, has come out and said no soldier or airman should be vaccinated against their consent. That's a uh, you know not necessarily if they have a religious objection their accommodation requests should be granted. That That is significant pushback within the archdiocese of the uh, you know the services. However, most military leaders, most military clergy have not been so brazen in their opposition. There have been limited requests for approval of exemptions at lower installations. However, the chapel leadership, unfortunately, you know at least from my practices and what I've seen in my cases, they're systemically corrupt. They're, they're corrupt because they're going along with the, the, the D.C. elite woke establishment which is hostile to religion and unfortunately they're just you know looking to get their paycheck they don't they care more about their own economic self-interest than they do the moral objection of their, their flock
0: well i think what most of us want to see is that the treatment in response to the COVID vaccine and and its various tentacles are just treated the same as we have acted in similar situations in the past. And time after time, it seems to be that the rules are being changed in our response to COVID. Now, what is your hope for how this entire issue will be resolved?
1: Well, hopefully the pandemic recedes and the mandate vaccination program goes away just by operation of the pandemic. Uh, loosening itself up. I um, mean, we, we were told back in May, once the vaccination rate got to a certain percentage of the population, the pandemic would die out. Now we're seeing lockdowns in Austria and Germany and across Europe where the vaccination rate, you know, some of those locations is 90% or higher. So it, it's quite concerning the political establishment using the COVID vaccine to create societal change that may not have been legislatively possible absent the conditions of the pandemic. So I, I really hope that eventually the Department of Defense is able to staff, you know, its, its manpower to have a, an effective national defense. Unfortunately, you're losing a significant chunk of your recruiting pool with this vaccine mandate. They're not even letting recruits join unless they're vaccinated. And that's 30 percent of the population right there, ineligible right off the top.
0: Sean, we got about a minute left. Yesterday, a Long Island emergency room was forced to close its doors because of a nursing staff shortage, they had to let so many go. How serious do you think the consequences could be for these mandates outside the service, just across our economy?
1: across the economy, it could be catastrophic. I mean, we already have a supply chain disruption crisis. We already have inflation spiraling out of control. We have a massive labor shortage across sectors. Um, We're talking about, you know, pulling out the bricks from the foundation across the economy. It's it's quite uh, shocking. There's significant pushback within certain states and within certain population groups against mandatory vaccination. And losing those individuals economically is detrimental to everybody's livelihood.
0: Sean Timmons, we appreciate your service to our service members, and we also appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the opportunity. Now, coming up in just about a week, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a case that presents the greatest opportunity to overturn Roe versus Wade since 1973. What can you be doing to build a culture of life as we await the hearing and the decisions? We'll talk about it right after the break. Don't go away.
2: Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily Scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture... It is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's Word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why Scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, schools
3: to 67742.
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you are with us. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com. You can watch this and every program on demand anytime you want. Now, next Wednesday, the U.S. Supreme Court will begin hearing oral arguments in a case that presents the greatest opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade since the infamous 1973 Supreme Court decision legalized abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy. Now, the case is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, and it concerns the constitutionality of Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, which prohibits elective abortion after 15 weeks. This Sunday, FRC is hosting Pray Together for Life, a nationwide prayer event that will bring together pro-life leaders from across the nation ahead of the oral arguments. I encourage you to join us by tuning in online at PrayTogetherForLife.com, starting at 7 o'clock Central Time on Sunday. In addition, there are other actions you can take to build a culture of life as we await the oral arguments and eventual ruling in Dobbs. Here with me to share 10 things you can do is Mary Zock, the Director of the Center for Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Mary, welcome back to the program.
4: Thanks so much for having me, Joseph.
0: It's good to see you. Before we go over your ten things, tell us first what viewers and listeners what they can expect from the November twenty eighth event that we are hosting on Sunday.
4: On Sunday, viewers can expect a, a prayerful event that will unite pro life people across the country. It's it's a non partisan, non political, cross denominational event uniting people from various Christian faith traditions um, to to ask God um, for his help to ask him to restore the the belief in the sanctity of every human life in America um, and to ask specifically for wisdom for our Supreme Court justices for for strength and courage and the right words for Solicitor General Scott Stewart um, and for for his team as as he goes and argues um the the constitutionality of the gestational age act in Mississippi. Um, we'll be praying for, for healing for mothers and fathers who have been affected by by the atrocity of abortion. Um, and and most importantly we'll be praying for life for the unborn children in the womb.
0: And again, the website is praytogetherforlife.com. That's where you can go to get information, to join it live. And of course, if you're going to be uh, in Mississippi, you're welcome to join us in person as well. Now, Mary, you've written a blog this week, 10 things that we can do to build a culture of life. We probably don't have time to get through all 10 of them, but you start, or one of them is support single moms. Tell us why that's on your list.
4: Well, you know, I'm a I'm a new mom. Um, I have a have a little boy, Joseph, um, and I have just been astonished at how rewarding it is to be a mom, but also how challenging. You know, there there is constantly something to do, and I'm so grateful to have my husband Ben's assistance doing that. But I, I it's it's really made me recognize. The heroic sacrifices that, that single moms make. Um, and, you know, we we want to be grateful for that sacrifice and really support them in all that they do. I I think, you know, offering to babysit for a single mom really creates a culture of life. Um, and, and maybe it's something that helps other women when, when they find out that they're unexpectedly pregnant. Um, it helps those women to choose life because they recognize. I won't be doing this on on my own. I'll have a family, a loving, supportive Christian family who will be here to help me.
0: The data consistently tells us that women choose abortion not because they like it, not because they're excited about it, but because they feel it's their only option. And the degree to which we can provide uh, material support as well as emotional support and make sure that women Uh, don't feel alone, it becomes much more likely that they make the right choice and give their child life. Another uh, item from your list is befriend a person with disabilities. Why does that make your top 10?
4: Well, I I love this one on the top 10 list because it's something that if you do it, you will be immediately grateful you did it because your life will become so much better. Um, As we look at the, the way that abortion affects people with disabilities in particular. We see that in, in countries across Europe, almost 100% of babies with Down syndrome are aborted. Here in the United States, that number is closer to 60 67% of uh, babies prenatally diagnosed with something like Down syndrome are aborted. Um, and, and part of that I think is because people don't know enough people with Down syndrome. They're not friends with people with Down syndrome. The second that you become friends with someone who has an intellectual disability, you recognize the gift that those people are to our world. And I think if more people were friends with people with disabilities, we would have a much lower number of people with disabilities being aborted. Of course, we wanna work for the day when that number is zero. Um, But I think the first step is reaching out in friendship.
0: Mary, one other I'm going to point out on your list: discern whether your family is being called to adopt. Tell us why that's on your list.
4: Yeah, so this one is perhaps uh, the the hardest ask on the list, um, but it's something that I think every family should consider. We should be prayerfully considering whether whether God is calling our families to be adoptive parents. Um, if if Dobbs sends the decision about abortion back to abortion legislation back to the states um, and and several states have greater restrictions than on abortion, we can only imagine that there will be more babies in need of good homes. Um, and, and we should celebrate the heroicness of the mothers who are willing to make an adoption placement plan for their children. Um, but But each family should consider, is my family being called to adopt? and and um that is a radical radical sacrifice but and and it's also a radical gift right it's it it reaps radical rewards Uh, so that is something that i think every family
0: should should consider and that is the Uh, It's the ultimate job of the church to look after orphans and widows in their need, which is why it is the job of the church to make sure that uh, the fatherless uh, are fatherless no more. Mary Zuck, appreciate your time very much and your your consistent uh, advocacy for life. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks so
4: much for having
0: me. And again, you can find that piece if you want to talk about it with your family, and you should, frcblog.com. Now, coming up, after the break, we are going to talk about a brief that the that FRC has filed on the SAFE Act. What are we arguing in court? We'll tell you about it when we come back. What
5: is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs.
0: Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholms and Tony Perkins. Today, late last year, Family Research Council filed an amicus gr- brief with the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Eighth Circuit in the case of Brant versus Rutledge, which challenges Arkansas's Safe Act. Now, if you're a regular listener or viewer of Washington Watch, you know we talked about this legislation quite a bit earlier in the year. The SAFE Act, also known as the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act, protects minors from harmful experimental and irreversible gender transition procedures. It was passed earlier this year, but a federal judge stopped it from going into effect as the lawsuit over its constitutionality worked its way through the court's. Now, here with me to talk about the arguments made in the brief is Dr. Jennifer Bowens, FRC's director of the Center for Family Studies, and she joins me here in the studio. Jennifer, welcome back.
7: Thank you. Thank
0: you for having me. So the situation here is the litigants, they've challenged this law, Mm -hmm. and they have a bunch of Experts, a bunch of medical people, basically saying that this is really good for kids to be able to change their gender, but you don't see it that way.
7: No, I don't. And why is that? Well, one of the key phrases that's used and by the medical experts is consensus, and this is important because um, they're not saying evidence. Consensus is different than evidence. Um, I used to work in the field of disaster mental health, and one of the things that we would do is implement what's called psychological first aid. It's just a basic, not really even uh, an intervention, but it had consensus agreement around it. Now all this is doing is giving someone a water after a disaster, giving some comforting words. No big deal. Now, we're talking about major life-altering, physiologically life-altering interventions. Um, And we're going to use consensus agreement. Uh, In other words, experts saying we agree that this is the right way. That's questionable.
0: What is the evidence that they are producing in support of their position? So
7: they're um, using a lot of methodologically flawed studies to say this is... If we um, use these practices, if we give kids hormones or puberty blockers or surgical procedures, these are gonna help reduce mental distress. And the reality is that the studies just don't show that. For one, the, the samples are off base. They don't include people who have detransitioned or that don't agree with the procedures. Um, there's a lot of lack of long-term evidence in uh, the research studies, the, the longest studies are 12 months long, which is not long enough to uh, really see how our kids faring over time. Um, so, I mean, we could go into all of these different problems for, for quite a long time, sure. but needless to say, there are serious problems in the scientific literature, which is why we're hearing this term consensus. And they're even saying robust consensus, which is an oxymoron.
0: Now, I hear some of the same critiques from the other side of studies done, for example, a a famous study in Sweden. It was a longitudinal study, and it found that even after transition, uh, transgender people had a suicide rate 19 times higher than the general population, which seems to suggest it's not really that helpful But they also say, oh, we can ignore those because those are flawed. Why is that? How do you resolve this sense that everybody's studies are flawed?
7: Right. Okay. So one thing that we want to look at is a body of evidence. Um, We want to look at multiple studies over time. And we can just look at the the evidence that's used to support transgender interventions. And one we can see, most of them are cross-sectional, meaning they're studying uh, some particular uh, question at one point in time. So we don't see how people are, are faring over time. The Swedish study is different because it does have access to national data um, because they have a national medical system. So they, they are able to look at some real data points over time, whereas the, a lot of the studies done in the U.S., we don't have that kind of access to a, a national system. Um, yeah. So so what we're seeing is a lot of consensus-based Um, agreement-based experts who are most likely ideologically driven and financially driven. I hate to say that, but probably a number of them are driven by finances instead of true research and truly helping um,
0: the kids, which is what this brief is all about. So FRC has filed, filed this brief with the court. What do you hope the court is going to take away from that brief?
7: You know, we're hoping that they will look at the evidence, the scientific evidence, and they'll see the things that we've unpacked for them, um, and they'll say, you know, how on earth can we, how can we allow the level of intervention, the level of um, destruction that's happening to our children, based on such low-level evidence in the scientific
0: community? Is there any chance that the research, the quality of this research? gets higher, and so we, we actually reach a real consensus where people agree on this?
7: Well, I think um, until some of the other issues are dealt with in the literature, like uh, there isn't a lot of inclusion of things that we know are common in this population, like trauma history, um, like we, we don't understand what's going on with this whole new cohort of young women that's identifying with trans um, ideology. How are they different from what studies used to produce? So we we need a lot more evidence, and maybe there will be. uh, But I think for for us who work in the field, we know what the answer is, and that is that this transgender ideology is not the way.
0: As with so many issues, we just need to be more concerned with truth than anything else. Dr. Jennifer Bowens, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. And coming up, we are going to continue this conversation. We're going to get into this idea of a consensus a little bit more. What makes a scientific consensus? How often are the scientists wrong? We're going to talk about that in the context of the Arkansas law that is being challenged when we come back right after the break. Stay with us.
6: Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news?
8: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
0: In the last segment, welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins. And in the last segment, we talked about Arkansas's SAFE Act and the brief the FRC filed last week making the case to the 8th Circuit Court of Appeals to allow the law to protect children from irreversible harm to go into effect. We spoke with FRC's Dr. Jennifer Bowens about the self-interested and ideologically motivated opposition of transgender advocacy groups. But now, I want to look at the available scientific evidence supporting the SAFE Act. Why is it good for kids? After all, We are supposed to be following the science, aren't we? Well, with me now to talk about this is board-certified psychiatrist Dr. Melanie Conway, a former assistant professor of psychiatry at East Tennessee University and now president of the Little Rock Psychiatry. Dr. Conway, welcome back to Washington Watch.
9: Hello. Good to be here.
0: Well, I've got some introductory questions for you here, I think, because we've heard a lot about scientific consensus where everybody claims to want to be following the science. You're a scientist. how does that work? What is a scientific consensus?
9: Uh, it's kind of like um, everybody says everybody in academia says it's one thing and then the rest of everybody else has to agree with it. <laughs> regardless if if there's studies behind it it's the big if, if big name people say it then then it's consensus
0: does that actually exist how often does that exist
9: i mean it is you generally you'd like to see some evidence behind the consensus versus everybody says so but um in this case uh i think every Um, everything that I've seen says the evidence actually is fairly low.
0: In general, just kind of across the sciences, how often is a consensus later found to be wrong?
9: Well, I mean, in the history of medicine, I mean, think about leeches. Um, I mean, there are many things that initially that medicine got wrong that we later go, ugh, Frontal in my field, frontal lobotomies for the mentally ill. Um, there's just a lot of things that have that ha- have been practiced that we look back now and go, "Oh, that was a really bad idea."
0: And I think the reality is, we. Oh, and I'm I'm not a doctor, of course, so it's difficult for me to critique things, but I am a human. And so I am familiar with the idea that I had a very strong uh, conviction about something, and then later I gathered more information and discovered that I was actually wrong about what I previously thought. And what's interesting, especially on emerging issues like this one, like gender reassignment, where really in the last couple of years, so we're talking months, really, the, the uh, increased attention on this issue, has there even been time? to gather enough information, to do enough research, to get something that could responsibly be considered a consensus based on science rather than just preference?
9: Well, I mean, I'm the latest uh, diagnostic and statistical manuals, DSM-5. And if you base things on what's happened in the last few years and look at the DSM-5, the DSM-5 is already way outdated. (laughs) So, Everything is very, very new. Uh, the skyrocketing numbers are very, very new. Um, and so, no, the, the long-term studies that the, the long-term studies we have say the evidence is very low for these things helping uh, cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers.
0: Let's get into that. How would you describe the current scientific literature when it comes to uh, I- undergoing sex changes puberty blockers, cross-sex hormone treatments prior to adulthood?
9: So if you look at, there's a there's a difference between single studies and big reviews of studies, okay? And like in the most recent, 2020, uh, Britain's National Institute for Care and Excellence, they looked at, the scientific literature to the point and said that the standard of evidence for prescribing puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for children was very low. This was 2020. 2016, even Obama's Center for Medicare and Medicaid noted that the best studies did not find any difference in the quality of life for transgender individuals after the surgery. 2004 uh, the university of birmingham that's england not alabama <laughs> but uh, evaluated more than a hundred studies and found no conclusive evidence that gender reassignment surgery is beneficial for patients so if you look at these big reviews of studies then you'll find that that the overall evidence is very low uh, the one y'all the uh, you and the doctor were talking about earlier from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. That's the institute that gives out the Nobel Prize in Medicine. They they did a pro, a prospective study where they followed people over a long period of time. Like y'all were talking about earlier, the just looking at a point in time is different than following people and seeing what their outcomes over a long period of time. So if you are a transgender individual this study said that you have a 19 times greater risk of killing yourself than after you've had the surgeries after you've had the hormones after you've had everything you wanted over time you have a 19 times greater risk of killing yourself now if you put that in perspective to date the most lethal psychiatric disease was anorexia nervosa, and they have a 12 times likely rate of killing themselves or dying than the general population. So being transgender, getting all the hormones, even in a liberal country like Sweden, you're more likely to die of suicide than the most lethal psychiatric disease yet.
0: Then wouldn't that make gender dysphoria the most lethal psychiatric disease? I don't know. It's not classified as that as such, but wouldn't that make it the
9: most lethal psychiatric diagnosis? You would think, but again, we're getting into it being an ideology versus they don't consider it a disease. They consider it an ideology. Okay. Now
0: there are different components to this and, and people are just still being introduced to this idea as their kids and grandkids are, are discovering this. So when a young person Wants to transition. A a young lady says, I'm a boy. I want to be a boy. First, you stop puberty. Then there are cross-sex hormones where you start to um, try to become the other gender physiologic, uh, um, at least the hormones. And then there's the surgery. Let's start with the puberty blockers. What are the effect of puberty blockers? Are they as benign as we are led to believe?
9: well the from a psychiatric perspective and i guess this is the if number one those those things those interventions um are not fda approved um uh, they certainly have no long term uh, no long term studies as i discussed earlier um and they can lead definitely to um bad long-term outcomes, you know, perhaps the worst being, well, among many, being sterility. So we're letting a a population of children, because the literature, what the parents are being told is follow your child. They know if they're right. You know, don't, don't cross them. So we're letting children make decisions that could cause them sterility, cause them not to be able to have their own children later in life. I mean, where else do we let children make that kind of gravity of decisions?
0: Are there other um, mental conditions, situations, that doctors allow their patients to self-diagnose themselves?
9: (laughs) I mean, I, uh, I really thought that was my job. <laughs> so, they they can certainly, you know, tell people their symptoms, but ba- yeah basically, for this disorder, um, the patient is comes in and tells tells the diagnosis.
0: Is it the consensus within the profession that once the patient declares themselves to have this diagnosis, that you're supposed to just cooperate
9: with that? Certainly. (laughs) I mean, that, that is, that seems to be the consensus is that people know what the, you know, that the kids know exactly and that it's fluid and it can change at any time. On the, on the other hand, it's fluid and then it's not. And, uh, but, yes, that seems to be the prevailing literature of, of if, if they know that they are, then they are. If the and rules there's no are questioning that. <laughs> yeah. If the rules are so
0: radically different for this particular diagnosis, why are they not more, more uncomfortable with that? Why don't they see the incons- inconsistency? Why do, they con- why do they insist that this is where the science compels them to go? Even though they treat these cases so differently than they would anything else,
9: I think it goes to culture. Everyone's scared to. Um, sadly, even our own profession, they're scared to run against the narrative of you know the 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 guy that wrote that co-authored the chapter on gender dysphoria and other. Uh, other problems like that, he, since 2015, um, he was just saying, you know, his name's Kenneth Sucker. He was just saying, you know, you should um, work with people. See if, see if, you know, some might need hormones, some might not, maybe they just need counseling. And for that, he lost his job. He lost his clinic. Uh, Lisa Lippman, you know, there are consequences for doctors for running against the narrative and when they when doctors see you know the main the main people in the profession their heads rolled, then they're scared to say anything
0: this kind of story appears so many places in culture now earlier in the program uh, we talked to an attorney who's representing members of the military who are seeking a covid exemption and just talked about how differently the military is treating exemptions from the COVID vaccine than they have treated every other exemption request throughout the history of the military. Time after time after time, we see in culture just the the political pressure around a situation changing Mm -hmm. the way we behave, which only increases the need and the the importance of courage for those who don't want to just be uh, governed by mob sensibilities. Now, we're speaking to Dr. Melanie Conway from Little Rock Psychiatry. Dr. Conway, we had talked about uh, puberty blockers, but there's another there's another chemical component of this transition when when a young person starts taking cross sex hormones, how are those different or similar to puberty blockers? Are they more or less concerning for the young people long term?
9: Well, what I would say to that, and again i'm talking from a psychiatric viewpoint is that and this is why the SAFE Act is so important, uh, and I was certainly in favor of it and spoke for it, is that once you start down the road of puberty blockers and same-sex hormones, kids will only desist. In other words, go back to their natal sex, or saying they're, their natal sex, 2 to 3% of the time. If you don't go down the road of cross-sex hormones and and puberty blockers and and do counseling, they will desist in other words go back to thinking they their sex at birth 85 to 90 percent of the time then the suicide rates come down then you don't have trouble with sterility later or trouble with bone density. Other problems that are caused by by initiating these things when when they're just kids. Yeah.
0: That's a tremendous difference, and it, and it should be self evident that all things being equal, it's going to be easier for a child, a young person, to live a full life in a, in a way that is consistent with their anatomy and what their what their body tells them that they are. And so those those differences are shocking and alarming. Now, Dr. Conway. Did you hear the news about the gender clinic in Texas that closed this week? If so, what was your reaction to that?
9: I'm sorry. I did not. Thank you for. You <laughs> I didn't. didn't know. But well, you then I... Educate me. I, I do not know the uh, cons- The I'm a. Uh, I'm uh, I was working.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> well,
9: in fact, Children's Hospital in
0: Dallas, they had a gender clinic. It had actually been protested a little bit, but they did close their doors, which opponents of gender reassignment for children are 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 uh, excited about claiming as a uh, as, as a victory. And I think we all should be. But uh, they cited privacy patient concerns for the reason that they closed this clinic. Do you think that's just kind of spin? Or do you think there's something unique about these clinics that, uh, that impacts privacy concerns?
9: Hmm. I think that um, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of lawsuits in the next five to ten years honestly and maybe they were starting to see that too like i've had a couple of patients that are detransitioners as adults and they obviously were one was more minor she i mean or do you consider this more minor she has a permanent mustache i mean it's Something she's going to have to live with the rest of her life. Dr.
0: Conway, we're, we're, I'm going to have to cut you off there. We are at the end of our time, but we really okay. appreciate your courage in being here because we know there is a risk and just your time as well today. Really grateful for you. Thanks so much. Thanks for allowing. Friends, that's our program for today. Hope that you have enjoyed this. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow on Washington, Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported.